Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. I'm Yes Like Rockadopolis. And I'm Lance Rockadopolis. And today we're going to talk about the fascist aesthetic, especially as it pertains to the BDSM world. But first, a couple of geographical shout outs. So we have one for Brighton and Hove in the UK. We will be there in early September. Uh, it might just be a day trip because we're going to be uh, we're going to be in London for a couple of weeks. But we definitely want to try to make our way to Charleston Farmhouse, which is actually my favorite human-made place in the world. I've been itching to go back there for a long time. I can't wait to go. So another shout out is to Riverside, California. I have fond memories of Riverside because my grandmother lived in Moreno Valley, which is sort of a suburb of Riverside. Uh, she lived there when I was a teenager, and we'd go to the Mission Inn for lunch on special occasions. It's a beautiful hotel and spa, stunningly beautiful. I strongly recommend it to anyone who might be visiting Riverside. I actually remember going there one time when I was home from college, coming down off of meth, crystal methadrine, and it felt like I had the worst flu of all time. But being there at the Mission Inn really helped a lot. By the way, that was the one and only time I ever did meth. It was amazing. It was, a, it was, inc <laughs> it was an incredible experience. But I would never do it again because coming down was so, so hard. And I could just see. And, you know, it was my best friend who gave me the meth. And she really went downhill and ended up in jail for a couple of years. Now she's a Pilates instructor and owns her own studio. So all's well. Okay, back to fascism. The term fascism can be used very loosely. But our definition for this episode is that fascism is a mass political movement that emphasizes extreme nationalism, militarism, and the supremacy of both the nation and the single powerful leader over the individual citizen. But today we're going to just focus on fascist aesthetics, which we're defining as an ideology of beauty that was first developed by Benito Mussolini himself. And interestingly, the term fascist comes from ancient Rome, and it means a group of something or a bundle. And the term was originally used to describe a bundle of sticks tied together that was used for judicial punishments. Sometimes, apparently, they also would stick an axe in the middle of it. Basically, fascia means a flogger. And there are a lot of various connections between fascism and BDSM. And the connections that we'll be talking about have to do with wearables, things that people put on their bodies, specifically uniforms, medals, and some utility items that some kinksters would immediately identify as being connected to BDSM. So we found a Vox article on the sexualization of fascism in the U.S. And it's important for us to note that specifically Nazism has really been the most lethal form of fascism to date. So according to the article, 
the Nazi aesthetic is widespread in the vanilla world. The article points out that the uniforms are sexy. Personally, I kind of find them very snappy. They (laughs) definitely know how to dress. And here's a quote from Vox. The politically forbidden and repudiated is just as likely to be the substance of erotic fantasy as it is the chosen political object. And another quote, images of sexualized fascism derive their meaning precisely from the distance mainstream culture puts between itself and deviation. And even though we are not Nazi players, we are not fascists, we are certainly not anti-Semitic, that last quote really resonates with me because it really has to do with the distance mainstream culture puts between itself and deviation. That distance is really where my transgressive fetishes exist. The Vox article also quotes Susan Sontag, a noted cultural critic, quote, fascism represents the exotic and the unknown. Right-wing movements, however puritanical and repressive, the realities they usher in have an erotic surface. Certainly Nazism is, quote, sexier than communism, close quote. And so there's this linkage between power, the fascist aesthetic, and sexiness. One of the biggest parts of that aesthetic that heavily influenced BDSM culture is the uniform, the Nazi uniform. The uniforms and the symbols that the Nazis used to decorate themselves with were designed, or at least one of them were, it was designed by Karl Diebisch, who was an SS Oberführer, or senior leader, and a German artist and designer. Some of the world's most famous 20th century fashion designers have ties to Nazis. Diebisch was assisted by a graphic designer that worked for the Hugo Boss Company. Germans pre-World War II were obsessed with physical beauty. They considered beauty as good and virtuous, and it was one of the most important ideologies of fascism. Emphasis was placed on the physique because the idea was that the human body indicates the structure of the mind. So there's this focus on exercising, becoming fit and healthy. That is so interesting because that goes straight back to Aristotle, who talked about you need to shape your mind to natural law, just like you need to shape your body to natural law through exercise. Nobody really thinks that anymore in a a literal sense, but that's actually really an important part of this project in very general terms. Right. You yourself pointed out that the fascist aesthetic is a combination of beauty and power. But there's also this uniformity of that beauty and power, and any deviation from that signifies an enemy and therefore is unacceptable. What is glorified is death, especially the death of the enemy, as well as dying in the service or the cause or for the nation. There are certain representations that go along with the uniform. They were big on the blacks, the reds, and the whites. 
and that's amplified by the Nazi flag. The black color of the SS uniform makes the soldiers look like grim reapers. The black in the uniforms also projects authority, knowledge, and sophistication. The Nazis were very deliberate in the use of color. It was their brand. The use of these colors harkens back to the days of old Imperial Germany. Hitler himself wrote, In red we see the social idea of the movement, in white the nationalistic idea, and in the swastika the mission of the struggle for the victory of the Aryan man. The symbols themselves are a big part of the uniform. The swastika was co-opted from an ancient Indian symbol. It is commonly found in religious buildings throughout Asia. It originated in India thousands of years ago. The word swastika is from Sanskrit, and it means conductive to well-being or good fortune. It was even used by Native Americans, and it symbolized good luck. There were other symbols, including the imperial eagle, the Reichstadler, the Totenkopf, or the Death's Head, the Iron Cross, the SS. All these are examples of the Nazis looking back in time. The eagle was copied from the symbol of the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Empire, actually. The Totenkopf was a symbol used by armies and pirates alike, and a lot of even current military units have that symbol that's basically the skull and crossbones. Our flag means death. The Iron Cross was a military decoration from the Kingdom of Prussia given to soldiers for their bravery. And the Lightning SS was used by pagan tribes of Germany, and they had their own meaning for it. It originally represented the sun. So again, there's this aesthetic tie to history, as well as the use of symbolism in presenting what the organization is all about. So as it turns out, a lot of these symbols and symbols that have developed from fascist iconography are still in use in various ways. And I think that many people, most people even, really do need to have tradition We like to look to the past for our sense of meaning, which is great most of the time. And that includes spiritual meanings, political meanings, self-identities. And some of us have a need to violate those cultural meanings, cultural norms. And that's, you know, what they're partly talking about in the Vox article And many people choose to get those needs met by embracing the Nazi aesthetic. So how does that aesthetic play out in different sociocultural milieu? We'll be looking at three cultural spheres in which the fascist aesthetic plays a significant role. So we'll be talking about neo-Nazis, Nazi role play, the leather community, and the BDSM world in general. That fascist iconography is really pretty uh, popular. I did watch a few porn videos for this episode, and I, I really wasn't expecting to find them particularly sexy. 
but I did find a few of them sexy to my dismay, shocked but not surprised. But one thing that I also noticed was that out of the dozen or so that I watched, only one of them mentioned Jews or Judaism and used anti-Semitic slurs, which I found to be interesting in itself. Not 100% sure what to make of that, but seems like Nazi play is okay as long as you don't reference the 6 million Jews that were killed by the Nazis in real life. So that was interesting. So it seemed like they were <laughs> representing a, an oppression of the German people. Is that what you're saying? I think what they were doing was trying to avoid making it about anti-Semitism. I see. It was <laughs> I think a, a little too close to home in the 70s and early 80s. I mean, there were the, the anti-Semitic ones, but they were really few and far between. So there are neo-Nazis around the world who are committed to global racism and anti-Semitism. From what I've seen online in Europe, they really seem to go all out, marching in the streets in full regalia, helmets, jackboots, the whole thing, as though they are a militia, which is a scary thought. They're definitely trying to give that impression. In the United States, what I'm seeing is neo-Nazis really toning it down, actually, wearing a lot of black and military fatigues. And it feels a lot less campy, in a way, than the European marching neo-Nazis. They don't have the regalia. They seem like they're more serious in a way, you know, or they want to come across that way. For whatever reason, as an American, to me, that sends more of a message of we mean business. I still see them using the swastika. So another use of Nazi wearables would be in Nazi role play. So not all Nazi role play is something that would happen in the kink community. But a lot of kinky players do find Nazi and fascist role play to be very empowering, including Jewish kinksters. It can allow people to take possession of the slurs themselves. And not just for Nazi role play, but for any kind of race play. Like there's been talk of people wanting to use the N word to describe themselves in different types of race play. Yeah, a lot of the research that I saw, they were very enthusiastic about Nazi role play and they were very passionate about it. If you didn't understand it, they were like very <laughs> calling you basically stupid that you don't understand why they're doing it. Especially the Jewish Nazi role players who wanted to turn that very negative world experience into something positive for them. And they were very indignant with people who didn't show an understanding that it was just role play. Yeah, like they were protecting their political incorrectness in some way, which I am certainly appreciative of. But without the uniforms, what is Nazi role play, right? It seems like the aesthetic is a huge part of it. You're beating someone, you're putting them down. So it's not just the uniforms, but it's also the language, you know, you're putting them down using culture-specific language. But without that, what is it? It's beatings, it's humiliation. Without the Nazi veneer on it, it's just BDSM. So there's also the leather community. The leather community is not role play. 
it's a lifestyle. It's often defined by its history as the first gay community. And then it became a kind of a system or subculture of BDSM-based organizations, even though not all leather houses were or are BDSM-based. And leather houses traditionally have tended to follow a military type of lifestyle and hierarchy. And the things that they wear often show their rank. It's not necessarily the same type of hierarchy that you would find in the military, but it is loosely modeled on military hierarchies. And of course, today, not all leather houses are dominated by gay men. So as many of you know, the leather community has been around since at least the late 1940s. And it started with more or less vanilla biker clubs and were established by World War II veterans who missed the excitement and adventure of the wartime environment. While these clubs were certainly homosocial, they were not necessarily accepting of homosexuality. Homosocial just means men hanging out with each other a lot. And so the gay members of the clubs started their own clubs Historically, the leather community has some fascist-looking practices in that they adopted a hierarchical social structure that is based now very loosely on the military. It's my understanding that they also have codes or values that they live by, and that includes brotherhood, integrity, honor, and service. So, as it happens, the leather aesthetic is based largely on the apparel made of, you guessed it, leather. This includes jackets, vests, boots, chaps, and the clothing is a way to distinguish oneself from other subcultures and mainstream cultures. It has a very masculine aesthetic, and that seems to be in contrast to any stereotype of gay being effeminate. A lot of their wearables focus on utility, even if it's symbolic of utility, right? So like jack boots. Jack boots are tall black leather boots used during World War II, and they are often a symbol of cruelty or authoritarian behavior. So for example, there's jackboot colonialism, or a country is under the jackboot of colonialism. And there are lots and lots of pictures of jackboots all over fat life. There are also the leather jackets. The Brando jacket is the classic one. He represented rebelliousness, hypermasculinity, power, but he was also really sensitive and vulnerable at the same time. So it's a really interesting image that he displays when he's in all of those iconic pictures. I believe that his jacket was called the Shot Perfecto. He has a specific name to it. Yeah. Another type of fashion worn by the leather community are the trench coats. And the linkage to World War II was that trench coats were worn by Erwin Rommel. He made that look famous. It's, you know, depicted in movies, like The Matrix, Blade, and Underworld. Vampire hunters seem to be very big on wearing trench coats. The harnesses are another example of a leather wearable that came from military culture. 
I see their utility, especially during sex. It can be made to accentuate certain body parts. Basically, it's a tool that your dom can grab onto and control the sub, you know, for fucking or however you, you <laughs> want to control them. Well, how you're supposed to use it is to hang things on it, like hang your like whisks when you're making your when you're making <laughs> your omelets, and you know maybe a knife for cutting vegetables. It's actually you know, it's actually a place where you can hook all of your tools, especially mm -hmm. culinary tools for male subs. I've also seen harnesses on the foot. It's great for accentuating that area of the body. Similar to the slave bells that you gave me. Yeah, so that's more symbolic, right? What are you going to attach to your foot for a utility? Go online and for BDSM, there are harnesses all over your head. What is a chastity device if not a harness for your dick, really? Mm -hmm. Could be. Chaps are another one. I actually love chaps. I don't own a pair, but I fantasize about becoming a chap designer. They're like velvet chaps for women now, you know, in all kinds of paisley designs and God, they're sexy. How could they not be sexy though? How could they not be sexy when they're exposing all of your genitals? It's so gratuitous. It's like the chaps are there just to point directly to your ass and your genitals. Yeah, it was always off-putting to me. I didn't, never found them sexy, to be honest. That's because you're so homophobic. Yeah, I think I've come a long way though. Yeah, <laughs> that was a joke. I don't think you're homophobic. Um, unless you can be homophobic and suck dick. Okay, anyway. So um, they were originally used for riding motorcycles, right? You ride motorcycles. Don't you have chap-like things for your motorcycle? Mm, no, I, I do. <laughs> I do have protective gear. <laughs> and if the leather community co-opted the wearables of the biker gangs, then the broader kink community co-opted the wearables of the leather community. And what we're seeing is a huge proliferation of the use of chaps, for example, harnesses, all of the wearables, plus a huge amount of symbols. I found several websites that are supposedly used in the BDSM community to describe different roles. And these symbols look a lot like the runes, which we see in a lot of Nazi iconography because they're from the superior world of Scandinavia. So the leather houses have tons of flags representing different houses, as well as different ways of being non-straight, let's say. And they tend to be very abstract, as do these symbols. So the best known runic symbol, for lack of another term, because I don't think it's technically a rune, is um, the Triskelion. That is the tripartite, looks like little sperms actually going around in a circle. But there are also symbols representing specific roles in BDSM. So there are shield symbols that represent male doms and femme doms. I guess the shield is supposed to represent protection. There are separate symbols for male and female and non-binary slaves. There are symbols for being owned versus unowned. There are symbols for being polyamorous and being a switch. And all of these symbols are really very abstract. Just a few strokes. 
And I have to say that on none of the websites that I was looking at, did I see any reference to the leather community. So I have to ask myself, who created all of these symbols and how many people actually use them? Now, I have to say that we went to a party at a friend of ours' house and he would have like, I guess, monthly or bi-monthly femdom parties. And at one of the parties, he had people wear like little ribbons that said whether you were a dom or a sub and whether you were available to play that night or not. And at the end of the night, I was chatting with him and he said that where he used those ribbons had the most actual play going on instead of just people just sitting around, right? And he, he thought that it was because you could identify someone's role and what they were interested in doing. And that was the only one of his parties that we went to that I, where I actually played with someone casually, someone who wasn't you. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's like an icebreaker of sorts. So anyway, I personally am really into conceptualizing kink and BDSM as a very creative, critical response to and commentary on mainstream dominant culture. As far as I'm concerned, there can be no kink without vanilla. Vanilla is kink's source material. But as we can see, what we do with that source material can vary widely. Nazi play and the use of the Nazi aesthetic are certainly examples of sourcing vanilla material. Right, and it's coming from a dark and powerful and evil, <laughs> to be honest, aesthetic. I mean, that's the source material, and I see it as transmuting it into something more positive and life-affirming. But now we're seeing a radical shift in how kinksters are presenting themselves. Now it seems to me like it's all rainbow unicorns and pixie cosplay get-ups, and also Marvel Universe superhero costumes. What's up with that? I have no fucking clue. So thank you very much for joining us today. In our next episode, we will be talking about the 1950s household kink, have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>